0: My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I talk to Critical Dom about preparation, professional DMing, some quick painting tips, and a bunch of other tabletop role-playing game-related topics. Before we jump into the interview, we do have some contest winners from our January Item Design Contest. The two entries that I picked as the winners, I picked because they are very descriptive and they also weave in some little named things, as you'll see, that kind of expand the lore of Kaldjanan and also give us a little bit of something that could be expanded on in future contests. So without further ado, I am going to read the second place winner, which is by bubbahuff eighty five. This is Uhurabi's Bethinking Tablet, an uncommon environment accessory. Available only to high-ranking viziers and publican elite, Uhurabi's Bethinking Tablet is more of a coroner's table than a surgical gurney. The Bethinking Tablet extracts memories from one's mind through the nasal cavity, be it the forgotten flavors of a wedding pastry, the fleeting laughter of an old lover, one's first naming day celebration, or even the face of one's killer. This silver and burgundy stone slab is used on the willing or otherwise, and stores memories in alabaster phylacteries. Memories are sold for profit, traded for favor, and even consumed in north called Jinan cuisine. In all, a painful process to those who survive, or even remember it, at all. So congrats on the second place win. I really liked this entry. It just uh, was very evocative in reading through the description. And now we will move on to our first place winner. This entry was by Daniel Ott, the Mundani Paired Blades, very rare weapon. Paired blades are a common sight on the streets of Kaldjanan, from the humble rusty blades of swords to the gilded blades carried by the upper district merchants. However, there are few which are known on sight so easily as those belonging to the Mudani. Draped in their blood-red capes and golden armor, the darkened silvered, paired blades each Mudani bears are an unavoidable sight. The elite guard of the Ember Palace, their blades are unique each forged from fallen meteorites and made to fit each guard individually, serving as individualized icons of office. To find one not in the possession of such a guard is to have pried it from their corpse, or more likely their tomb, long after the owner's death. However, more often than not, foreign ownership does not last long. The Mudani are secretive of their ways and their weapons. The Mudani is not just a ceremonial guard, but an assassin. Envoy and expert warrior in one. Each one is trained in the paired blades by an existing mudani and will only gain their own Once they have met the approval of their master as if the martial prowess of the mudani themselves was not enough The blades themselves are unaffected by magic a result blamed on the unique metals They are made from and slash through arcane wards and magical beasts as easily as they cut regular flesh Many a would-be magical assassin has been foiled as their wards and spells simply failed to manifest. Congratulations to our first place winner. Again, the descriptions and the evocativeness of these two items just were top-notch and I really enjoyed them. And you will be able to find these in the next couple of weeks as I get them added to the free PDF. And that will be available on the Discord server. You can already get the current version of it if you just head over to the Discord server and look for the contest entries. And if you are interested in future contests, then come and hang out in the Discord server and chat about what kind of a contest you would like to see next and see what we've done in the past. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Welcome, everybody. I have Dominic Martin with me from The Critical Dom on Twitter. Welcome. Dominic. Good morning. How's everything going? Good. Dominic, can you tell us a bit about how you got started in the tabletop role-playing game space?
1: Well, this is actually a tale which requires me to go back a couple of years before I even got into D&D. For back in the olden times, uh, before everybody had a cell phone and really even the internet for the most part. Um when I was 15, I had noticed that there was a bit of a lump by my neck and went to the doctor. And we found out that it was, in fact, uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. We had a biopsy performed and everything. And I had to go through chemotherapy and radiation for much of that year, which, interestingly, was a time when we had this big ice storm in the area. So a lot of my time was actually spent um, just kind of sitting around, playing games, reading, and whatnot, just waiting for time to roll on. Now, in that time, um, I had also joined a youth group, And it's called Demolay, supported by the Masonic Fraternity. And eventually, after chemotherapy and everything, um, we had a night where we did a sleepover at a friend's house, and one of the guys from the group, he had the books, he wanted to come over, and he said that he wanted to play Dungeons & Dragons. We had no idea what it was. Which strangely enough, I had actually played Neverwinter Nights on the computer before I'd even played that, so I had no idea what the game system was at that point. But um, that particular night, which I actually do still remember quite vividly, we're in a garage. There's a rather rough map down there on the table. And he just asks us, All right, what do you want to do? Just kind of look at each other. He gives us a description. And I say, "Uh, Okay, I'll go over here to this spot. And he describes some dwarves, short guys, beards, and everything working away. And I go up to them, I want to talk to them, I want to try something. Um, Long story short, uh, I wind up getting into a fight because I offended them somehow, my toe gets bit off, another guy goes into back alleyway, he winds up getting shanked by a guy in the shadows, that kind of stuff. But that kind of crazy freedom was rather revolutionary because we pretty much only played video games up until that point. So that kind of uh, emergent gaming was something entirely new to us. And uh, that experience had actually stuck with me for a while. Now, at that point, I was about 16, 17, and I really didn't play D&D too much afterwards until I wound up going to college, where in my freshman year, it just so happened to be the case that uh, my roommate had a bunch of the Forgotten Realms books. He had the D&D 3.5 books, and I spent a bunch of time reading them. I got my own copies of the books, and we just started playing games um, on that floor. And it wasn't until, really, I was 19 that I actually started trying to Dungeon Master. So that was my sophomore year of college, and 4th Edition had just come out, really. And I had gotten a group of folks, um, we played an irregular game. Um, Didn't go on for too many sessions, but everybody had fun with it, and just kind of enjoyed how things went. And so, really, I've basically been a Dungeon Master for... Oh, goodness, about like 16 years, sort of, about half my life at this point, which is kind of crazy now that I think about it. But it ultimately comes out of me um, getting into this experience while in a youth group. It just rolls on from there. And then through my education, which in college, uh, I went after numerous degrees. I have degrees in philosophy, classics, Latin, ancient studies. And I've also got a master's degree in American history. I actually bring all of that stuff to the table, and as such, I can deliver a lot of things that people really enjoy. And quite often, um, I'll spend my time reading ancient lore, occasionally snippets in the original language. If it's Latin, I'm starting to start on uh, Greek like next week. And bringing all that together um, really gets people at my table, and they enjoy it quite a bit.
0: What uh, systems are you running now?
1: Currently, it's um, D&D 5th Edition um, entirely. There was a very long-running Pathfinder campaign, Pathfinder 1st Edition, that um, I had for about three and a half years, but uh, that was online, that was actually with uh, most of the guys I had originally learned to play with, and one of them was off in, like, uh, Illinois, and the other guys were dispersed around in different states, so um, we'd come together every couple weeks and uh, play for a few hours, and I ran the game for three and a half years, and it was quite a bit of fun. It was a very small-scale campaign in that the party was effectively setting up a logging town for some dwarves who were going to then use it, of course, for economic development, shipping, and everything eventually. And then they went from basically just a few tents out in the woods to, all right, we've cleared this area, here's some log buildings, here's a palisade, and they just kept on building it up over time, which was quite a bit of fun, especially because... The party continued to explore the area. I had all kinds of stuff set up. And occasionally they'd find something mysterious. Occasionally they'd find something weird. And they go and investigate it. And the story just develops from there. Uh, But eventually, uh, I gave them a choice. Because over the course of that time, um, the dwarves had decided that uh, they wanted to expand their territory above ground. Because, um, very much like in most fantasy literatures they had lost a previous kingdom this time to mankind and so they wanted to uh, conquer area that had been lost uh, less than a century previously and the party had to decide if they wanted to actually work for them or perhaps try something else and they decided on a very interesting middle path they said that they would scout and gather information however they wouldn't directly participate in the war because some of the characters were married some of them wanted to settle down And they didn't think it was their place at that time as adventurers to go off and, I don't know, potentially assassinate a king. Who knows?
0: (laughs) And what have you learned as a DM over your 16 years of, of running games?
1: Preparation is necessary. All too often I see tips on Twitter of, oh, I got no idea what they're going to do, so I don't really prep much of anything um your players need to understand that when they sit down at your table not only is it your table uh, you're delivering a story that you have prepared and yes they're participating in that yes they get to choose kind of where they want to go but if they start going fully outside your plot structure that's going to require all kinds of improv skills that are ridiculously difficult to cultivate I mean, unless you're going to sit down and really watch all kinds of episodes of Whose Line Is It Anyway, if you're going to try to, like, look at how comics do that sort of thing, if you're talking about um, certain kinds of jokes, um, you're going to have an inferior experience, in my opinion, because when you have everybody mostly in line, it is always a lot of fun for the players to go off and do their own thing once in a while. You're able to actually have everybody participate Build up the experience and then have a greater story because of that, um, because otherwise you are herding cats. And with the two cats I do have, they don't want to be herded. And so they <laughs> go everywhere in the house. It doesn't matter what I say. And sometimes they wind up, you know, slapping my coffee off of
0: the table. I I definitely feel that the improv is harder than or is harder for me than I wish it was. Um mm-hmm. I I find that I kind of have a a middle ground when I DM and that I like to have kind of an area prepped and then they can kind of do whatever they want inside of that area. But then Mm -hmm. if they start pushing too far outside of that, it's like I got to we got to wait and we'll we'll look at that next session. And I got to prep some more because I can't I have a harder time coming up with stuff on the spot unless it's just, you know, little like reactionary things.
1: Yeah, I do like uh, doing that sometimes as well. Um, when you have a kind of a smaller defined area and you wind up having NPCs prepared and you have little snippets ready for them. Uh, this is actually something I liked, uh, particularly when I ran the Dragon Heist campaign. You get the Troll Skull Tavern, you have a neighborhood, and so I had uh, my notes, I had little snippets about who the people were, how they would react, because all too often I've noticed with the 5th edition adventures, they give a bare bones description of a person. But not so much a character, less a personality, even, um, or even how they speak. So, for example, I do recall that there's supposed to be a carpenter or some such in that area, and so um, it, was, it was like an elf. So, okay, what if we have an elf in overalls, smells like sawdust, speak with a bit of a slight twang, and then because of that, whenever you hear this guy speak, you know exactly who you're talking to, and because of that, you actually do get that image in your head a lot easier than you know a before you standing five and a half feet tall wearing overalls and a cream colored shirt smelling of sawdust is this elf guy his name is bob
0: yeah and having those um just kind of a better a better description of the characters Mm -hmm. what um so as you've mentioned prep what kind of prep do you do before each of your sessions
1: So, the way I started off with is, because I'm running official campaign books, I look at where we are in the plot, where we're going, and then I effectively come out with a broad session outline. You know, um, your session starts, you've got your recap of what happened last time, you have to decide if a little bit of time has passed before you pick up the story, did they get a long rest after the last session, that kind of stuff. And then I'll go through and basically set it up to where, you know, so, for example, last night, my party, they're doing Out of the Abyss, they're on a boat, they're in the Dark Lake, and I'll ask them, all right, so nothing happens in this four-hour period, is there anything in particular you guys want to do? And sometimes yes, sometimes no, it doesn't always happen. And then we just roll on from there, or sometimes I'll have an NPC come up and talk to one of the players and try to develop something there. Uh, so, for example, last night, there is a Kua um, who's a frogman in this case, Shushar, who can go with the party, depending on who gets killed when you escape from the Dark Elves. And his, his personality is a weird version of Kermit the Frog. <laughs> and so, hopping up to the cleric in the party, um, Shushar, with his dark bug eyes and slightly wet purple skin, went up to him and asked him, I've been having these strange dreams where I have... I've actually left the worship of the Deep Mother for somebody else who spoke to me. I saw a a, a strange twilight sphere on a on a horizon. I think it's called. What, what does it mean? It it gives me powers, and and yet I don't know who it is. But I never got anything from the Dark Mother. So eh. so he's kind of freaking out a little bit, even though he has healed the party. He's used to inflict wounds and guiding bolt. And everything is kind of dark-colored with a purplish tinge to the outside of the spell effect. And so the cleric does a religion role, kind of thinks that I might be um, Illustri, who is this chaotic good uh, drow goddess of, you know, having a good time out in the moonlight. And as odd as it sounds, he kind of believes that this is the case currently. So that could develop into something as we go along. But it lets us, for one, uh, have a character use his skills in a particular way and two, it can make a kind of connection between the characters because that particular cleric in the party uh, worships Lethander, who is typically, you know, uh, his depiction is a rising sun, whereas you have more of a twilight goddess or a goddess of the night. So there's some fun duality stuff you can do there, and it can roll on and perhaps spiral into a different kind of quest, but that gives you a particular character beat or a moment that you can then have. And then roll on as you continue to have the party, in this case, uh, go through the dark lake where, uh, depending on your rolls, sometimes bad stuff happens. You have all kinds of terrain hazards and also you have all kinds of monsters, you know, like vampiric mana rays that can try to assault the party. And so it kind of depends. So I've got an outline like that and then we just kind of roll through it, see what happens. And it also depends upon the type of game my players are doing um I'll either shorten or lengthen certain segments. Uh, so for example, um typically my Monday and Tuesday games lots of combat, not so much role playing and because of that I might have extra counter set up just in case and we just go on from there. I like... have um sorry go we got a we got a starting point, we have a stopping point stuff in the middle. I just have a general outline that I work through effectively.
0: Um I I like I like the idea of just having a little character that you throw in with the party, and then if the players choose to kind of dig deeper into their connections with the world uh, and with the party, then, you know, something might come out of that. But if they choose that they are just going to ignore that and they're not interested in it, then then it's just another character that's along for the ride for a little while, and then it may part ways at some point. Oh, God, speaking of parting ways, and this...
1: This still saddens me to an extent. Um, When the party actually escapes the drow and they head off into the Underdark, there is a dwarven NPC. Like, she was really cool. And she was kind of hanging out with the uh, Gone character in that because we just started that game after uh, Wild Beyond the Witchlight came out. So, literally, the guy's a murder bunny. And they were both plotting consistently to just either, like, take out some NPCs because... You know, it's like a, you know, that guy's a drow, that guy's a jerk, that kind of thing. Uh, That way, they could have a better chance of actually escaping alive. But eventually, because of the course of things, there's this horrific temple of oozes, and she kind of got dissolved by a a black one.
0: Like, it's just horrible. (laughs) But them's how the dice roll. Do you, so speaking of the dice, do you tend to roll uh, in the open for your players? Um, no.
1: No, no, no. Um, I prefer that we have that segmented space between the player's portion and then my portion behind the Dungeon Master screen, which, um, kind of a funny point on this. Our Dungeon Master screen for 5th edition just so happens to be kind of short. And, look, I get it, I'm a short person, it's kind of cool, but when I've got taller people and not too away, too far away from my station, they can kind of look over sometimes, and Sometimes you have to warn the PCs that something really horrible is about to happen if they keep on that special road that they're traveling down.
0: <laughs> so, do you fudge dice rolls?
1: Uh, rarely, um, if there is a narrative purpose for it, I like to. However, my players always get a kick of my reactions to the dice, whether it's you know rolling snake eyes on two d20s or rolling you know box cars on two d20s. Uh, they enjoy my own reactions and also they hate the fact that, you know, I'm grabbing like six dice throwing them down the dice tower I've got and as they spill out having clattered down the spiraling staircase I gotta tell them, alright dude, you just took like 25 damage as this thing just ripped out part of your guts. <laughs> so that's what I prefer. Um, sometimes um, if it's really convenient, like we say, roll 20 um, I'll roll out in the open but that takes away the option to sometimes fudge dice for a narrative effect. And I just, I just like, I very dislike the idea of fudging consistently or just setting it up to where, um, perhaps behind the screen, you're not paying attention to the dice at all. You're just deciding, okay, if on round two, this guy takes 15 damage, his hit points are at this. And then you just, uh, you take away that random element, which is a
0: hallmark of the game, really. Yeah. I've, I find that having at least a little bit of that randomness is good. We actually did a session zero um, recently and we pretty much randomly rolled everything from the stats to the characters uh, and the story or back kind of backstory that emerged from doing that was, I think a lot more interesting than some of the other ones that we've done where we just, you know, come to the table with the character already put together. Uh, There are actually some
1: older books I know that are, It's supposed to be um, not really all that thick, but they're just chock full of backgrounds you can roll from. I want to get some of those resources at some point, just in case somebody has absolutely no idea about how they want to create a character. So we just sit down. Hey, so you're playing a bunny person. You've got some connection to the Feywild. But let's just start rolling on these background tables and see what kind of crazy stuff comes out of it.
0: It was kind of funny how, as you're rolling these random things, you would think, in general, that you know, you're not going to get like a cohesive uh, story out of it, right? Because it's just Mm -hmm. a bunch of uh, random options. But then as we were piecing together characters, somebody would roll something and then it's like, oh, oh, okay, that makes sense. This is this is this connection. And then, you know, something else happens and then you relate it back to a previous connection and it all kind of like slowly meshes back together, which is kind of cool. Yeah, making those
1: connections yourself uh, is quite a bit of fun because that really does get the players into... Uh, setting up the character, and so they'll be able to roleplay it better, and depending on how you actually want to go through the story, um, maybe he starts going to different kinds of taverns, and he's looking for a dude who's got six fingers on one hand. (laughs) Which, I mean, The Princess Bride is almost a perfect movie.
0: Yes, it is very, very good. uh, Especially in, like, D&D terms, it's just... Mm -hmm. you've You've
1: got... you have sweet romance, you have daring escapes, all kinds of wonderful things. All the meanwhile, the kid is no longer playing the NES and he's just listening to his grandpa. I love that.
0: Yeah, such a good movie. Um, are there specific tools or websites or books or anything that you like to use for DMing?
1: Uh, specific websites or tools. Um, I have a terrible habit of because I I have the commitment to run my games as a professional. I get all the official books. And there are some times when I can't exactly remember where something is. And sometimes, as such, I'll look on, um, you know, Roll20 to look up a monster for a stab lock or something like that. And sometimes you can get ideas from it. Uh, Because I have also integrated a lot of um, digital tools just um, on my side of the screen... Uh, That way I can actually have, um, like on my left here, I've got my version of the table that my players are seeing, because I've got a virtual tabletop set up on my um, table now. And because of that, I can move things around without them seeing and, you know, pop some Dwergar out of nowhere because, hey, they were invisible. And because, you know, they move only 25 feet and around, they can only be this close. Whereas if I didn't have that particular tool, which in this case is Map Tool, which I've used quite a bit, um, you know, I can't really fudge that. And I really like that uh, particular layer of eh, realism, I guess we could say, when it comes to this fantasy setting. But just having um, tabs able to be open with different stat blocks for what I need, that's pretty useful. Um, I also like to go ahead and roll hit dice um, for Monsters Hit Points and also their initiative ahead of time for the session. That way I don't have to, you know, have any extra rolls behind the screen, have there be effectively what's a kind of dead air. And so you could just roll on from there. Sure. And you, what is MapTool? I haven't heard of that one. Uh, MapTool is just a pretty straightforward virtual tabletop um, program. Uh, you can just set up a server and you've got different um, maps that you can go ahead and load up. But it's a, it's really useful. I used it for that... Uh, Pathfinder game that I ran for three and a half years. And we had this really long and involved list of maps of the different versions of... um, uh, It was called the Crand Camp, initially. eventually became, you know, Crand City. And sometimes you get to reuse those maps as the players go back to these previous places they've actually been to. Uh, So, for example, a really useful um, aspect of that is there was a tower that party passed by early on in the game. And there really wasn't anybody there. They had to clear out a couple of um, monsters who had taken up residence. But there was a bit of a hobgoblin incursion. And the entire session was the party just trying to get inside of this stone tower. And this thick wooden door with iron bands crossing it was their biggest enemy. Because they couldn't get in. And so you got uh, the rogue climbing up the back of the tower under all kinds of arrow fire. The hobgoblins are making fun of the party from inside because they can't bash it open. And being able to return to some of those maps without having to actually go back and re-find it, retool it, and everything is incredibly useful. Um, that does remind me, on Steam in particular, there's a program called Dungeon Painter Studio. I've also used that quite a bit. And those are really simple and intuitive tools to be able to just throw a map together, and you can then export it as a JPEG. And then I can just load that up in the map tool, and I'm ready to go. Uh, so, for example, tonight, because I've got Curse of Strahd... Um, the Abbot uh, fled from the party because they rolled up on him and started hitting him. And because he's got a very high fly speed, he got away. And then he'd hit himself on the side of the kind of major mountain... That the Abbey is, in fact, uh, built upon. Two of the players um, were riding a horse to go back down to get a wheel... Because the party had a carriage, and one of the characters is a Necromancer, so he's got bodies he's storing for use. And so they really need this carriage, right? And so because the Abbot did that, two of the players go down. And now I've got the Abbot flying above two of those players. They really can't go faster than him on a horse in a single turn. So he's going to follow them, and he's going to bash them, and we'll see what happens. But because I've got the map already loaded, and it's high resolution enough, I could just zoom in on that part of the pathway which leads up to the abbey, you know, put a horse um on the virtual tabletop if need be or use the actual horse models I've got, put their models on there. And then we have the fight and you've got this great visual representation of uh both the television and also the models.
0: That's awesome. So you have the you have a screen like on your physical table.
1: Uh yes, this is actually one of the biggest projects that I'm going to work on this year is I have a very old trestle table, and this thing is kind of falling apart. So getting a new table, integrating the TV onto it, probably is going to require some carpentry skills I don't possess, but my friends do. And the goal is to get the table, um, cut out a big enough rectangle to put the TV down into it. That way it's about level with the plane of the table itself. And then that way, if I want to, I can then go ahead and extend the map to the whole section of my table there if I can find a, um, find a tablecloth that's got those one-inch squares. So that could extend it, and then everybody can see the table a little bit better because of that. Or I could just wait for November when Black Friday deals happen and just find the biggest TV imaginable. <laughs> and just like, all right, guys, here's the table. What? We'll see. I haven't decided yet.
0: That's awesome. That's a project that I would like to do as well. Um, we just don't tend to play in person enough to make that worthwhile at the moment.
1: Uh, yes, that's that's been the craziest thing about the last couple of years. The local game store, which is run by a friend of mine, uh, he's gone down to basically just being open two days a week, and effectively for an year and a half, it was only curbside pickup. But, unfortunately, economic circumstances being what they are, uh, He's just trying to do as best as he can. He's got Friday Night Magic going again, but there's not really any D&D going over at the store now. And for the most part, all those guys who were going there
0: are now at my table. Sure. Yeah, that's the pandemic has been hard for a lot of businesses, especially those where you kind of have to have people in the store, you know, which is a bummer because we want to keep those little stores around.
1: Yeah, and especially it's an issue because of some business decisions which Wizards of the Coast is making. Uh, where it seems as if they kind of want to kill off the smaller stores, uh, just so they can, I don't know what, sell to Amazon and have people play magic online. You know, just kind of remove some of the production costs here and there, whatever about the general player base.
0: This is probably a good time to chat about some of the stuff that you're working on. Um, you mentioned professional game mastering. Do you want to talk about that at all? Uh, yes, because
1: that has been an insane adventure. Uh, back in August um previous to that i had been a uh, a classroom aide uh, over in our local k-12 through school system and specifically i was working with junior high kids and over the course of that over the course of the pandemic um i decided that uh quite literally for my health it would not be a good idea to continue on with that job and so um i set things up um saved money spent money um, funnily enough it coming from the stimulus checks we have received to uh, get a better computer, buy D&D books, buy a bunch of models, and gradually I've gotten numerous people uh, willing to pay to sit down at my table as I deliver the story, and occasionally also paint models for them. And people just seem to really enjoy having what effectively is kind of like a little club, and I guess it should be considered a little analogous to Cheers, where... You know, every Monday night, what are you doing? You're coming over to my garage. You know, I've got textured stone wallpaper up. I've got Frank Frazetta paintings. I've got some old D&D art, uh, numerous shelves just covered with gaming supplies. You sit down, you're here to play the game, and then just kind of get away from it all for a short amount of time, which it's only three hours. But most importantly, there's a booze cabinet, and everybody contributes. And there's also a refrigerator where everybody contributes. So, you want pop? It's there. If you want snacks, we got them. Booze? Absolutely. All kinds. And so, you get this little area that you get to go to, forget your troubles for a short while, and have a good time.
0: That's awesome. That's the, the whole setup that you have sounds like it's a blast to play there.
1: Um... Yes, it's been an incredible amount of work, just physical work, also. Because guess what? I had to clean up the garage, and it didn't help when I had quite a bit of carpet out here from the last couple of years previous to this. I was going through a couple of our back rooms, ripping out all the carpet, um, shuffling everything around the house, and then um, we actually have these wonderful uh, wooden floors now that are nice, they're stained, nice and glossy, and Yeah, because of that, it's also made my house look better because of it. But the work has to continue. I've also got some old junk that still needs taken out of the back of this thing. But we'll just keep rolling along. It'll be good. It'll be better. Well, this whole thing started like I got a piece of plywood that was... Oh, what is that? It was probably like a 4 by 3 And I had it stored in the garage. And every game night, I would take this thing from the garage wiggle it into the kitchen, flop it on the kitchen table, and then set up my stuff and play it. But it's a very cramped space, because you got all these guys, i got a central table, and unfortunately my house is one of those sort of ranch ones which were built in the 60s for as little money as possible. And moving out to the garage has given us more space, it's let us decorate, and
0: because of that, just makes everything better. How frequently do you run these professional games?
1: I currently have uh, games in the garage Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday. Um I've also recently started an online game and that's also going pretty well. And crazy as it sounds, I might be able to start a couple more in the next month or so. Fitting everything into the schedule is of course a bit of a pain, but I mean there's money to be made and I got to follow that.
0: Um yeah, so you're running you're running games like almost every night. Um how- Mhm. Um, And then uh, are those weekly as well? Oh yeah,
1: yeah. Every Monday, except for the first Monday, because I have a meeting that night. Every Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, The online game is every other Sunday in the morning, because that works for those guys. So, working with people's schedules is something I always wanted to do. um, Even when I was just occasionally running a game over at the game store here in town. Because, unfortunately, everything seems to be situated around a... Um, first shift schedule. So I've been trying to get people who might have weird schedules, and they might be on second shift, they might be on third shift, and try to accommodate that as well. So when you're running these
0: professional games, you know, you have a lot of games every week. Are you running mostly just modules? Uh, yes, um, because they actually do
1: take a lot of the preparation work um, out of just coming up with a story. Um, I do prefer to do that um, because it makes my job a bit easier. It lets the party also decide what kind of campaign they want to be in. And everybody just wins out because I buy all my supplies from the local game store here in town. So everybody gets to be happy. My Monday night ga- game, they, um, they finished Descent into Avernus. And so after that, they wanted something where um, it was a bit killer, even more killer than that. So we decided to go with Out of the Abyss because they're being hunted by drow. It's the Underdark. And because of that, uh, they, they've almost died a few times. It's kind of nuts, but it's a lot of fun.
0: Um, And how much... So you said the sessions are uh, three hours. Yeah. How much time do you spend prepping for a session beforehand?
1: Oh, that will vary wildly. So typically my game night is from 6 to 9 p.m. And prep time normally two to three hours but that can be spread out and separated um depending on what part of the activity i'm trying to come up with um so for example um just yesterday i probably spent a good hour just um setting up the map and then working on you know what monster is where stat blocks their initiative and all that and then because i was i had some other activities to do that day so i was driving my grandmother around because she had a doctor's appointment now i just be thinking about it when we're going to a place and I got some music on. So I would say typically two to three hours. And then for my games, I also typically um, cook dinner. So I also pick up some stuff, throw that together. And even while I'm cooking, I could be thinking about the game itself. So it really does vary. But at the same time, because uh, in pretty much all these cases, I'm playing in an established setting like the Forgotten Realms. I don't have to worry too much about my own homebrew setting. Because that's already there, the players can read it, they can interact with it as much as they want. And because it's established, it's also easier to conjure up in everybody's mind.
0: Um, And how did you go about getting people or finding people that were interested in, in having a professional game master?
1: Basically by accident. So I was running campaign games over at the game store for basically a couple of years. And then I had happened upon the idea of, okay, so what if to save um a bit of money, perhaps to cut costs, what if I put a little price tag on it? And I also said, hey, you know, I'll paint a model for you as well. Uh that was the Descend into Avernus game, which, you know, wrapped up last year. And initially, you know, it was ten bucks, come on by. Um it was initially paid to the game store and then um, you know, just Get paid to me, but as we moved along, I started thinking that well, people are really enjoying this. What if it gets expanded? What if I have you know a space in my own house where I could do this um, and take the risk of investing money in working on my own skills, especially painting, and then saying, "Hey, here is this service I'm willing to offer. Would you like to participate in it?" And the response has been rather positive impressively i actually have a lot of guys who come uh two or even three times a week because they want that experience they want to be at the table and enjoying all these crazy adventures
0: um and can i ask how much you charge or how you charge
1: no that's a very fair question um twenty dollars per player per session is the price point i am at um i know that there are super famous people and they charge a lot more but um, considering the area and the friends I've got, I think it's a pretty good price point. And I came to that really just by looking at uh, my own costs, the time required for me to get ready for the game, and relative to everything else I had earned up until that point. So it's a lot of trial and error, and you just move on from there and hope that if you're to raise it by like 5 bucks, they won't think that's too much and they'll just keep coming back because they want that experience,
0: right? That makes sense. And as you as you get more books and stuff too, that's you know you have kind of overhead costs that you have to to cover as well. So, but you're also providing more, I would say, more value too than when you have mm-hmm. better space, more books, more more options, essentially for your players, which is pretty cool. Uh,
1: yes. Um. So, for example, the big Uh, gift set just came out. I went and bought that thing as soon as it was available at the local game store, so, you know, that's about, you know, 200 bucks in the business right there for updated rules. And Actually, what I like the most about it is the Dungeon Master screen, because on it, it's got the prices for different kinds of inns. So if I really want to screw the players out of some money, they walk in and, you know, and keeps looking at them out of the corner of their eye... You look like you got a little bit of money. A golden and a half for a room tonight, boys. We're about hold up. <clears throat> and so you can slide things and get a different kind of scale. And it's always fun when the party wants to negotiate back, or worst case scenario, they try to threaten the innkeeper. And so you can get um, you know some emergent gameplay out of that, or you can get some sort of antics going on. And it could just be something weird
0: that could wind up inspiring them. That's awesome. I like the idea of the tavern keepers trying to squeeze a little bit of extra money out of them. Yes, that's a ton of fun. Uh, I always
1: like to put extra effort into innkeepers, but that's probably also due to the fact that my favorite fantasy book series is The Wheel of Time. And Robert Jordan, as an author, puts an impressive amount of work into just about every innkeeper you come across in that series. They're across, like, all different walks of life. You know, one's got, like, battle scars. One's a woman. She, like, threatens her husband to keep him in line. Uh, a character like Basil Gill is pretty much in the entire series, that kind of thing.
0: Um, is there anything else that you wanted to mention about either your professional jamming or any of your other projects that you're doing?
1: Um, nothing in particular really comes to mind. Um, as weird as that sounds, I know people are always trying to work on a new project, but at this point, I'm actually trying to work my way through an article. I started last year, and I'm trying to um, finish up... And that's entirely on the topic of American revolutionary history, where um, I read Jean-Paul Sartre's Nausea, which is basically about historiography and writing history and the problems with it. And I was wanting to link that because effectively he says that you can't write history because one, you kill your subject, and two, you're really just alone in the world. You have no real connections to anybody else. And I was wanting to link that to, uh, in some extent to some uh, trends in American historiography going on right now where you've got um, folks who are quite literally pushing significant changes to the historiography without um, going through the scholarly process where you're just shoving things through without basically doing a good portion of the work. Um, And so there was a debate that happened back in October That's between a couple of um, very famous American historians. One of them was Woody Holton, the other one's Gordon Wood. And it is on the significance of, uh, let's see, Dunmore's Proclamation, which was uh, in the November of 75, if I'm remembering the date there correctly. And whether or not it was a major impetus for the American Revolution, and they go back and forth. But over the course of it, you notice that Woody Holton is first off, playing to the crowd, which is unacademic, and he's also making certain demands of Gordon Wood, such that he's making the debate, which is supposed to be out a scholarly topic, into effectively a breed of political rally. And that's a bit of an issue, because the only thing you should be concerned with is the truth of the matter. And so I've been trying to work through that. Um, you got Sartre, and he's got his various um, objections to uh, historiography, and then You have to get into what's the purpose of history, and then you got to get into what's going on right now. So I've only been slowly working through that because it's difficult to come to a spot of common ground with uh, a French existentialist who, having come out of the post-World War I era, um, is entirely disillusioned with everything. So as weird as that sounds, it's kind of a thing I'm working on. It's just very slow. Um, Other than that, I'm just keeping up with my games. I'm trying to get better at painting, and because of that, um,
0: that's kind of where I am right now. Mm, Painting minis, too. I I enjoy it, and I am not very good at it yet. (laughs) Okay, a couple tricks of the trade. First off,
1: washes. Learn to use them. They are your best friend. The hardest part when it comes to painting a mini is getting the base colors, okay, the dark baser color, onto the model in the right portions. But once you actually have those on, If you take uh, a wash and then you smother the model in it, it'll do a lot of the detailing for you. Then after that, just do a little bit of dry brushing, raise the values on some spots. All of a sudden, it looks phenomenal.
0: What type of paint do you use? Um,
1: I use the WizKids line. Um, Again, because the local game store, that's what they've got. And as far as I know, I'm the only person around here who really paints. Uh, That's the brand
0: I use. Sure, I've used, uh, I started with the really cheap uh, acrylic paints from like Walmart, um, Mm -hmm. which aren't, you know, they're not terrible. Um, And then I've got a little bit, a small set of, um, I think they're army painter paints. I picked up a set from one of the uh, game stores and those seem to work fairly well Mm -hmm. as well. Um,
1: There are a few uh, painters I follow on Twitter. I know they use that brand as well. So that's good stuff.
0: Just haven't ha- put in enough time yet. I think is my issue. So practice, practice, practice.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, practice looking up different kinds of techniques, and you just gradually you get better at it and better at it until you're satisfied. Um, do you have a favorite uh, encounter or NPC? Favorite encounter or NPC. Um, let's start with the NPC first because this will come back around to the descent into a Vernus game I ran. Um when the party is still in Baldur's Gate and after they leave the low lantern probably in a pool of blood uh Rhea Mantlemorn comes onto the scene and she's one of the folks who's going to be a hell rider for El'theril and as she comes to the party she starts to talk with them try to figure out um what they know she gradually became as important to the plot as the rest of the party because they liked the character they liked interacting with her And eventually, even though in the actual plot of the story, she stays behind once the party gets to hell and they leave Elturel for the, you know, blasted plane of Avernus itself. She goes with the party and because of the events that had happened back in Baldur's Gate, I gave her levels in Paladin, where basically using um, old conversion ideas from like 3.5 and such, I gave her those levels and she helped out the party quite a bit. But because of the nature of that campaign, when it came time to look at Zario's sword and have somebody try to take it, nobody was good enough to take it except for her. Which, as far as the narrative is concerned, that's kind of neat, but also pretty disturbing. Because you've got some shady characters doing shady things in hell, and then she's the only one who actually has the righteousness necessary to pull out the sword and then <laughs> attempt to redeem Zario. But again, that's that fun, emergent gameplay where you have a minor character become a major character who becomes plot critical because they can do something the rest of the party cannot. And in that case, it was take up the sword, effectively become an angel, and then attempt to redeem Zariel, which they actually did do. Got some very lucky rolls on that one because the course of the campaign was such that the final fight where they're trying to get rid of... The various chains holding down Elturel so it can go back to the Prime Material Plane. The party was fighting three Pit Fiends and Zerial at the same time. So they had just a few rounds, really, to try to pull it off. And they pulled it off.
0: That's awesome. Then,
1: then Encounters. I have a soft spot for Ettercaps, but that is because I was traumatized by them in Baldur's Gate. Good old computer game. You see, when you go to the Clockwood in that game, you just like, you're walking around, you're not paying too much attention, you then step on a web trap, the entire party gets stuck, and then the spiders come. And these pot-bellied, lean, purple monsters with numerous eyes and very large mandibles go up and they just inject you with all kinds of nastiness to digest you before making you into a milkshake. So I have quite a bit of a soft spot for caps myself, even though I hate them with a violent, burning passion.
0: Those are the best ones to throw at your party, right?
1: (laughs) Oh, yes, and because of, um, I would say, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, I actually had quite of an appreciation for using Dwergar, because one, they got the invisibility, and two, they actually have a good Enlarge ability, whereas the player's version of Enlarge, oh, you get an extra 1d4 to your attacks. No, with the Dwergar, you double all of your dice when you're doing damage, so, you know, the Dwergar, they've got normally a... You know, a, a war pick, and, you know, it's like 2da damage. But you start giving them greatswords, you start giving them mauls, and then all of a sudden, they're rolling 46 for damage each time. It doesn't matter if they're a relatively low monster on the food chain. All of a sudden, uh, they can take you out
0: if they get lucky. Yeah, things that hit hard, uh, even if uh, they don't stand a chance to survive very long, they they get scary. Mm-hmm. It's also pretty fun just to annoy the party. Um, So, for example,
1: if you're lower level and um, something can fly, or literally just fly away, uh, to bring it back around to the Abbot over in Curse of Strahd, you just, oh man, he's got a fly speed of like 90 feet. He just goes away. He's out. He's got self-preservation as a goal of his. Can't catch him. And so he'll show up later. He'll show up again. And he'll keep going until you kill him. And so you wind up with a bit of a harasser in that case.
0: Do you ever, like, level your NPCs up if they survive multiple times against the party?
1: I do not. um, That's just something I've never really thought to do. Occasionally, they might have an extra item on them, because uh, one thing I really do love about Pathfinder in particular is when you go to the equipment section, it gives you all of the equipment they're carrying. And, you know, it might be a potion of storm drying strength, and they can use that, and then all of a sudden they deal, like, you know, a total of seven bonus damage just from their muscles. But no, that's not something I typically do.
0: Cool. Well, we are getting pretty close to time. Um, All right. Why don't we ask one more question and then we can wrap it up. All right. Sounds good. Um, If you could have any RPG book created, what would you put in it?
1: Ooh, if I could have any RPG book created, what would I put in it? This actually comes to a central complaint of mine about fifth edition D and D, and it's that your choice of weapon really doesn't matter beyond the damage die or dice in the case of a maul or say a greatsword. I would shove in the critical hit um, threat ranges and also the various times of multipliers from Pathfinder, because then you are looking at yeah it's a big chart yeah it's a bit weird to get used to, but it makes each weapon that somebody takes actually have a role or a reason to actually take the weapon uh you know a lance you know it deals double damage on a charge after that it's kind of useless or a dagger it's got a different critical threat range than your regular weapon and because of that you have more of a connection between the player and the weapon they do have than say just switching out with whatever seems to be magical if all the difference is, is um just the damage die and it's just kind of whatever so, for example, my favorite um, uh, instance of this, short sword versus dagger in D&D 5th edition. You've got the finesse rules. What reason is there to take the dagger over the short sword if you are a rogue? Really just comes down to the fact that it can be thrown. And yeah, you can get sneak attack on a thrown weapon, but if you've got a short bow, which is also a d6, you'll just use that instead. So, if we were to shove in that kind of a chart and change that, that gives you a reason. To take the dagger over the short sword, if that is what you want to do. And it also kind of brings back some weapon specialization to some extent, where, you know, somebody gets really known for the awesome weapons that they're really good with. You just like in the, uh, say, the Song of Roland, um, towards the end of the story, where Charlemagne's forces, are too far away. Roland's guys are all dying. They're fighting the Saracens, trying to keep them away. And he knows that death is about to take him. And he's trying to get rid of this awesome sword, and it's too powerful, and he cannot destroy it. And so he just throws it away as far as he can before he is overtaken.
0: Yeah, having the uh, having weapons have different different effects um, is interesting, especially in the case of like you said. There's no reason to take a dagger if you could just take a weapon that has better damage. Mm-hmm. Um, which is one of, I think one of the reasons why I like some of the systems that have um where like the damage the damage dice isn't dependent on the weapon that you have mm-hmm. um because then it's like okay well a short sword and a dagger for me do the same amount of damage so i'm going to take the one that i think is cooler you know or i can kind of play around with with some of that and i like the idea of adding extra effects onto different type of, types of weapons like some of your heavier weapons might smash armor or something um where and i like the extra critical range on like a dagger or something it makes mm-hmm. thematic sense
1: yeah um i've actually gotten into playing a little bit of the warhammer fantasy role-playing game which is in its fourth edition currently and their weapon system sort of has something like that where there is a base stat block for any hand weapon and so um you know it could be a dagger it could be a hand axe and they use the same basic stat block so it's it's kind of like that
0: oh well, cool well um dominic i had a great time chatting with you thanks for coming on the show hey thanks so much for having me man thanks for listening to this week's episode of dungeon masters toolkit podcast you can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes and if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show check out our subreddit or join us in our discord server